Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have a great guest all the way from Austin, Texas. Welcome to the show, Scott Carson. What is going on, Victor? Glad to be here. We should call it Hot Austin, uh, based on the temps here. The real estate's hot. The temperatures are hot. It's crazy here. I love it. Well, great to have you back on the show. You've been on the show before. And yep. boy, there's so much has changed in the landscape since we spoke last. But for the folks who have not met you yet, why don't you take a moment, give a little bit of your backstory and how you got to this point in your journey? Yeah, so I've been an active real estate investor for over 20, 20 years now, 23 years now. Um, but for the last 17 years, I've been focused on the distressed debt, distressed mortgage side of, of real estate investing. That's where I'm buying uh, mortgages from banks and hedge funds, primarily first mortgages on residential commercial real estate. And we buy that at a big discount. And how we make our money is that we, once we buy this mortgage at a discount, we will we'll then either reach out to the borrower, the homeowner, try to get them back on track with the modifications, just start making payments on time again. If they aren't able to do that, we'll work some sort of uh, liquidation of the asset, cash for keys, deed and lose. And if they want to play hardball, then we have the right to foreclose. And then uh, we'll take the property back that way. But our, our goal is to always try to keep people in their houses or in their businesses. So um, I've d- been doing that since 2007, bought over a billion dollars in debt. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm actually as hot as the market is doing in, in all across the country. We're actually seeing an increased amount of distressed debt and distressed real estate that uh, is going against what most people are talking about. So I'm excited what the, the future holds for the next 24 to 36 months. Well, and that's been pretty much predicted. Uh, and certainly many of the folks that I talk to are predicting a fair bit of distress coming in both residential market and certainly in commercial. Uh, the headlines, of course, are all about office and commercial, but it, we're going to see it in multiple different asset classes. People are going to be struggling with affordability and uh, it's going to result in distress. There's no question about it. Let's talk a little bit about your process. So you've, you acquire these notes, you do a loan modification. Once you have these notes performing, are you then reselling those notes? How, what, what kind of a seasoning period are your buyers requiring before you can actually get an exit on these transactions? Well, I'm glad you asked that. That's the first time anybody's actually accurately mentioned seasoning who's been interviewing me before most people think of seasoning and talking about barbecue salt pepper and garlic or olive oil you know what i mean but what victor means by seasoning is once we get the bar back on track how many months of on-time payments do we require our institutional buyers require and usually they want 12 months of seasoning uh, 12 months of on-time payments so that that asset is now reclassified as a performing note or re-performing instead of non-performing. Now, for a note to become non-performing, the bar basically needs to fall behind it by at least three months to hit the non-performing side. That's where we start seeing the bigger discounts, especially at six months of non-performing. But uh, now that that reclassification of reseasoning can vary a little bit. If, if a bar brings a large chunk of cash to the table to reinstate um, or you know buy down what they're defaulted on or they're behind on, six months may be a possibility as well. Um, usually, though, we're depending on what the return is, and when we calculate our, our ROI with you know, holding costs and what they bring to the table, the cash flow off what we paid for it, if we're seeing a pretty good return, we'll hold on to that note for an extensive period of time, three, four, five years in a lot of cases. If it's a skinnier deal on the ROI, um, then we may sell it off after 12 to 18 months of on-time payments to mortgage funds or IRA investors who are looking for a decent return for their their, their lazy assets. 
Well, let's talk about the different types of defaults, because there are those where folks are simply not keeping up with their payments. And then there are also those defaults that occur when the borrower has made every single payment maturity default where the note comes due and maybe they ended up being upside down at the repricing of the debt today's interest rates they couldn't get there how do you deal with those or do you deal with them differently what's the process so i'm glad you bring it because you're seeing a lot of that in the multifamily space right now where it's mature defaults where you know the three to five year more you know, term has expired and now the borrowers you know need to refinance out of that mortgage and the interest rate is, you know, double, tripled what their payment would be, or that's what, you know, what their primary exit strategy was when they purchased the uh, multifamily was this, you know, regentrify it and sell and cash out. Well, that's not the case anymore. So, when it's a mature default like that, I don't mind extending the terms of that note. You know, it all comes down to what's going on. What what do the financials look like, especially on the uh, DSCR loans that we'll buy in a lot of cases, the commercial debt. You know, how, you know, what kind of discount can we get, and what kind of return are we going to see? Um, here's, here's the thing. A lot of times when it's a performing note like that, even though they mature defaulted, we may get a bit of a discount, but it may not be enough for us, especially in today's market. There's still a gap between what investors want to pay for stuff and what banks or lenders want to sell stuff. All that, that gap has been wide for a while in those defaults, those mature defaults. It's starting to get skinnier and skinnier, and skinnier, especially now that we've entered the fourth quarter of the year, we're starting to get more, uh, you know, larger discounts from banks and lenders on that stuff because they want to get it off their books be- before the end of the year and they can get their cash in to hold on to that stuff and, and sell off that bad debt off their books because they don't necessarily want to own the asset in a lot of cases. There's a lot of concern about liquidity in the banks, about stability, about banks being upside down. So far, most of that's been focused on the bond market. But the truth is we've had, gosh, more than a decade of record low interest rates it's not just a handful of medium-sized banks. It is every single bank in existence is facing the same problem. It's just not making the headlines because nobody wants to talk about it. Yep. No one has a crystal ball. There's the two big to fail banks, which all that means is that someone's going to bail them out. But what does your crystal ball say? So I'll tell you this. It's funny. You're exactly right. Nobody wants to talk about it. But the banks literally are disclosing how bad it is on their quarterly reports that they're following with the FDIC reports. So you can see every bank, every, they want to have FDI insurance. They've got to disclose on their quarterly reports that they file how much in default they have, how much uh, is up, how much upside down, You know what kind of uh, reserves they have, what's beyond 90 days in default, what's under 90 days in default, which that tells you, okay, what, how bad they are this quarter, but the 30 to 89-day default shows you what's coming down the pipeline next quarter. And that number is getting bigger and bigger out there. So, yes, you're exactly right. Nobody wants to talk about it, but my crystal ball says it's – it's going to get worse, especially in some of those asset classes you mentioned. Office has taken a beating for a while, has continued to take a beating. We'll probably be lucky to maybe only see a third of the big mall retail spaces like that around because over half the malls are in default right now. So if you're in the commercial space, it pays to understand that there's opportunities out there. If you've got cash and can be creative uh, with the opportunities you're going to present yourself. You know, I wouldn't necessarily want to go buy an office space just to have an office space, but if, if you could convert that to apartments like we're seeing done or taking some of these big box stores that have been sitting vacant for a while, you know, these old Walmarts or grocery stores and convert them maybe to self-storage, we see that taking place or, you know, mixed use in a lot of cases. So the, it's it's getting worse. People aren't talking about it. And every bank is a little bit in how they're structured. And what's different this time around, Victor, versus what happened back in 2008, 
Back then, a lot of the commercial debt was financed by Wall Street. That's why you saw a lot of those Wall Street firms struggle. This time around, your local and medium-sized banks wanted to get in on it. So about 70% of the commercial debt was financed by your smaller regional banks in a lot of cases. And they're necessarily the ones that are a little bit easier to buy this stuff from and be able to buy like a one-off commercial note versus a, a Bank of America or Deutsche Bank or something like that that has this huge portfolio they, that they can't necessarily sell off a one-off note. They've got to sell a huge pie-off, which there's smaller buyers for that. But on the smaller regional banks, many of them are willing to sell stuff off or in some cases, even willing to allow you to buy the note and they'll allow you to finance the note through them if you bring a little bit of money down towards the note purchase. Fascinating. So they would continue to be the loan servicer in that circumstance. That's correct. Exactly. Exactly. Let's talk a little bit about the relationship building process, because if you are a bank and you know that some of these Wall Street hedge funds have raised tens of billions in opportunistic funds, that's code for vulture fund, uh, right? (laughs) Uh, And you're not a brand name. How do you develop the relationships with these lenders so that they actually know to pick up the phone to call you? It's all about marketing and just following up, following up. I mean, 90% of people never follow up with a second phone call. It's probably worse than that in a lot of cases. If you, if you look at uh, association, you know, you know, American Marketing Association, and that's the thing that's helped us over the years is that once we make a connection with the right party at that institution, you know, bank, whatever like that, even if they say no to us on the front end, we still follow up with them on a monthly basis with a, either an email or a phone call. Hey, what do you have on your books you're looking to get rid of this this quarter? What do you have to get rid of this month? And just touching base. We know that we're going to get no a lot of times. There's going to be deals that fall out, you know, deals that they now need to move. And most of these uh, asset managers or secondary marketing individuals, they're not marketing people. They're looking at portfolios. And so if you give them a phone call, a lot of times you may be the only person that sees that deal because you're the only person that reached out about their stuff at the right moment. So it's all about follow-up, follow-up, follow-up. Let me give you a a, a little example. You know, we all remember Countrywide, right? Countrywide going down and Bank of America buying Countrywide at 20 cents a dollar. Some poor chap who probably screwed up massively Countrywide, who was was set to man the phone for the special assets department at Countrywide back in the day. All his job was just to pick up the phone and answer people calling and talk about buying Countrywide's assets and their non-performing stuff. And he literally was just taking phone call after phone calls. He goes, yeah, we'll, you know, he basically just to answer and put a list together to hand off to Bank of America once Bank of America bought it. You just have to be the squeaky hinge in a lot of cases. And it's easier today than it ever was back in 2007, 2008. You can literally go onto LinkedIn and type in special asset managers or secondary marketing managers, and you'll find a whole list of people at different institutions across the country. And that's really our first starting point um, is looking for those individuals and just making the introduction, following up with an email, a letter, an email and, and just literally making that introduction tell them exactly what we're looking for. The important thing is is to have a lot of communication. You know, they're not always looking for somebody to come to the table who's got a hundred million dollars. If you've got a million bucks or half a million bucks, or you've got a group of investors that can pull some funds together, take down an answer to, that's valuable because you're going to get that problem note, that problem child off their books. And they're as long as you're honest with them, hey, and you can close. That's what they they worry about. You know, if you can close, great and take that problem off their hands, great. They'd be happy to work with you in a lot of cases. I love it. Well, Scott, if folks want to connect, if they want to learn more, what's the best way? Easiest way is to go to uh, our website, weclosenotes.com. You know, weclosenotes.com. We've been doing this for over 20 years, bought a billion dollars of debt. 
And of course, if you want to book a phone call, pick my brain, you can always go to my calendar link. It's easy. Talkwithscottcarson.com. That's talkwithscottcarson.com. But first and foremost, the most important thing you're doing when listening to this podcast right now, Victor kicks ass and takes name. I wouldn't be back on this if I didn't love what he's doing. So make sure that you show Victor a little love. Hit that subscribe button and go on and leave over a five-star review for him as well. For you. you know you need your cup of espresso in the morning. Victor's helping to provide that for you. I love it. Well, thank you, Scott. Well, I love what you're doing, and uh, you're doing great work and great to catch up. And for the listeners at home, definitely connect with Scott Carson. You can connect with him at talkwithscottcarson.com. The links will be in the show notes. And in the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen, and we'll talk to you again tomorrow.